When last we left our hero, antihero, villain, depending upon how you see him, Vlad the Impaler had certainly caused a rift between himself and the Saxons of Transylvania, an ethnic German minority in the region whose allegiance to the King of Hungary had made them easy targets. After what could best be described as the destruction and wholesale slaughter of several of their villages and their populations respectively, the Saxons were leery of the Wallachian Voivode prince, and while he'd participated in the peace talks following the Michael Shilagi-led rebellion in Hungary, the Saxons became all the more distrusting of him. As it turned out, they had a right to be concerned. With the election of a new king, Matthias Corvinus, to the Hungarian throne on January 24th, 1458, some semblance of order was restored to the region. Remember those peace talks between Shilagi and Vlad? The pair unanimously agreed, at least on paper, to allow merchants from both principalities to work and settle in Wallachia and Transylvania respectively, so long as they were treated fairly and equally by the powers that be. Behind the scenes, however, power was being reconsolidated, with Shilagi choosing other candidates to serve as Voivode of Wallachia. But Vlad had a trick up his sleeve, one that would allow him to maintain control over his domain, as well as that of Transylvania, which had traditionally been under Wallachian jurisdiction prior to its absorption into the Hungarians' kingdom. It began with a simple addition to his royal title, quote, Lord and ruler over all of Wallachia, and the duchies of Amnash and Fagarash, the latter two of which were part of Transylvania proper. By September 20th, 1459, he had gone as far as to reclaim these fiefdoms for Wallachia. The final straw for the Saxons came by the end of that year, when Vlad forbade their merchants from entering the country, forcing them to sell their goods on the Wallachian-Transylvanian border instead. In response, the Saxons began stealing goods from Wallachian merchants in Transylvania, an act Vlad interpreted as a declaration of war of sorts. The Voivode leapt into action, doing what he did best, that is, torture, kill, and impale several of the merchants and their families. Some were even burnt alive. Through all this, a man named Basarab Lauta moved into Wallachia and laid claim to it, though the new king of Hungary supported a pretender known as Dan the Younger, or Dan the Third, to be Wallachian ruler. Sometime in April of 1460, Dan stormed into Wallachia in an attempt at claiming it, but was quickly captured and executed on Vlad's orders. This triggered another bloody campaign of revenge, in which the Voivode invaded southern Transylvania, killing and impaling all men, women, and children who had been taken captive along the way. In addition, all Wallachians in the region were to retreat back to their homeland, or else face punishment or death. The man drove a hard bargain, that's for sure. But Vlad's military troubles were far from over. Sometime after peace broke out in the region again in mid-1460, official records of the Ottoman Empire documented that Vlad had neglected to pay his customary tribute to the Sultan, Mehmed II, for a period of three years. Whether this was due to the fact that the Wallachian prince had been embroiled in conflicts on his own doorstep, or simply refusing to capitulate to Turkish sovereignty, is unclear. Regardless, infuriated by the fact that Vlad no longer seemed to be fulfilling his promise to him, the Sultan sent an envoy, a Greek by the name of Tomas Katabolinos, to Wallachia to order the Voivode to Constantinople, now Istanbul. The crafty Mehmed had also set up a trap along the way, dispatching the bey, that is, governor of Nikopolis, what's now Nikopol in Bulgaria, to the Danube River, the Sultan gave precise instructions to capture Vlad while on his way to the city. But the Wallachian prince, always a step ahead of his enemies and rivals, soon uncovered this plot, and had both the bey and Katabolinos executed. Do you recall in the last episode how the Ottoman Turks had taken a Romanian fortress in the town of Jurju in their invasion of the region? It was to hear that Vlad boldly traveled after the execution of the Ottoman officials, demanding, in fluent Turkish, mind you, the man was full of surprises, that the commander of the garrison surrender the fort to him and his Wallachian forces. When the Turks saw the size and scope of the approaching army, they acquiesced without a fight. Thus the fort at Jurju returned to Wallachian hands. From here, Mad Vlad led his forces into the Ottoman Empire proper, raising and devastating entire villages along the Danube River along the way. 
In a letter to Hungarian King Matthias Corvinus, dated February 11, 1462, the voivode boasted how he'd killed, quote, 23,884 Turks and Bulgarians, unquote. He also sought, in the same breath, Hungarian military aid, stating how he'd broken his promise to the Sultan, quote, for the honor of the king and the holy crown of Hungary, and for the preservation of Christianity and the strengthening of the Catholic faith, unquote. Alas, no Hungarian aid ever came. Knowing he'd have to go it alone, Vlad urged his troops on. Upon learning of the Wallachian prince's planned invasion of the Ottoman Empire, Mehmed II raised an army of his own, some 150,000 strong, to meet the enemy head-on. Some sources of the day, including those of Byzantine historian Launikos Halkokondiles, claim that the size of this Ottoman army was, quote, second in size only to one, unquote, the one being that which had wrestled Constantinople from Byzantine control in 1453. Some historians believe that the sheer number of soldiers raised by the Sultan indicated that he wished to invade Wallachia in retaliation. There's a problem with this theory, however, as Mehmed had granted Vlad's brother, Radu, as voivode of Wallachia in the former's absence, signifying that the Sultan simply wished to change the principality's ruler. Thus, the Ottoman fleet landed in the Wallachian port city of Braila, the only such port on the Wallachian stretch of the Danube at the time, in May of 1462. Under the command of the Bay of Nikopol, the troops crossed the river on June 4th that same year. Seeing the size of the Ottoman army, Vlad and his men resorted to scorched-earth tactics, in which they burned any fields, crops, or supplies so that the enemy wouldn't be able to utilize them, before retreating to the vicinity of Targoviste, some 50 miles, 80 kilometers northwest of the current Romanian capital of Bucharest. Some two weeks later, on the night of June 16th to 17th, Vlad broke into the Ottoman camp in an attempt at capturing or killing the Sultan. This seemingly crazy move was meant to stir the enemy into a frenzy, which would no doubt make it easy for him to vanquish the Turks once and for all. Whether he'd acted on bad intel or simply didn't know that the Sultan wasn't at the campsite remains unclear. In any case, he and his men instead ended up attacking the tents of two of the Sultan's viziers. Needless to say, the Wallachians retreated at dawn the following morning. But when Mehmed targeted Targoviste at the end of the month, he found that the town had been completely abandoned. On top of that, he and his troops were exposed firsthand to the horrors of Vlad the Impaler's tactics when they happened upon, quote, a forest of the impaled, unquote, in which thousands of its citizens had been strung up in a truly grim display. As if this ghastly spectacle hadn't been enough to demoralize the Turks, they succumbed to the region's intense summer heat, suffering from thirst, and, thanks to Vlad's scorch-earth tactics, a severe lack of food. Thinking of his soldiers' overall well-being, the Sultan ordered a retreat from Wallachia to Braila, but such a move wasn't without its consequences in the region. Stephen III, Prince of Moldavia, rushed to capture a strategically important fortress armed with a Hungarian garrison in the town of Kilia in what's now Ukraine. Vlad did the same, though he left some 6,000 of his men behind to attempt to thwart the Ottoman retreat, but to no avail. The Turks decimated this Wallachian force. During the siege of Kilia, the Moldavian prince was wounded. Before Vlad could come to his aid, the voivode discovered that his own brother, Radu, had been fighting alongside the Ottomans, as the Sultan had promised to support him as successor to the Wallachian throne. Though Vlad would go on to defeat Radu in a couple different battles over the ensuing two months, an increasing amount of Wallachian troops were defecting to Radu's, and therefore the Ottomans' sides. Feeling a sense of betrayal, Vlad fled into the Carpathian Mountains, the largest mountain chain of the region, in the hopes that King Matthias Corvinus of Hungary would assist him in reclaiming his throne. But this plan would prove futile, for Radu seized the opportunity of his brother's absence to legitimize his own claim to the title of Voivode, even going as far as to pay the Transylvanian Saxon merchants, Vlad's sworn enemies, a hefty sum of some 15,000 ducats apiece to win their favor. Talks with Matthias Corvinus fell through, and, at the Hungarian king's command, a Czech mercenary was sent to capture the Wallachian prince. 
Thus, Vlad was imprisoned, though the exact sentence remains unclear to this day. At this time, Corvinus presented a letter to Mehmed II, seemingly written in Vlad's hand, imploring the Sultan to join forces with the Wallachians so that Vlad would be restored to his throne. Most historians agree, however, that said letter was likely a forgery by Corvinus himself to provide grounds for the Voivode's imprisonment. The Wallachian prince was first sent to the town of Alba Iulia in present-day Romania. This was followed by a 14-year sentence in the Hungarian city of Visegrad. No records of Vlad exist from this period, roughly corresponding with 1462 through 1475, and he was only released, according to Slavic tradition, after he converted to Catholicism. While Vlad reclaimed his title and seat as Voivode of Wallachia, his power was greatly limited after his prison time, though Corvinus officially recognized him as, quote, the lawful prince of Wallachia, unquote. The Hungarian king did not provide the much-needed military assistance for him to fully wrench his principality from other powers, namely his brother Radu. For the rest of his life, he drifted across the region, namely within Hungary, and died sometime in the opening days of 1477 in a skirmish against another claimant to the Wallachian throne and their Ottoman supporters. His body and final resting place have never been found, though several theories from local peasant lore to the accounts of high-ranking officials claim a variety of endings for this most notorious figure, each as grim as the last. Some say that his corpse was hacked to pieces by the Turks, and giving the deceased Voivode a taste of his own medicine, his decapitated head was displayed on a pike in Constantinople for all to see. Still others claim that his body was found in a marshy region of Snagov, a town some 25 miles, 40 kilometers north of what's now the Romanian capital of Bucharest. It's likely that we'll never know for certain what became of the Wallachian prince's body after his death, but he's certainly been granted a type of immortality in that he's still being discussed and fiercely debated to this day. Vlad the Impaler's life was more than just the inspiration for one of the greatest fictional characters of all time. While his figurative thirst for blood inspired the tastes of an immortal vampire, the accounts of his tumultuous life reveal a complicated, sometimes misunderstood figure, who did everything he could to legitimize his claim to his country and throne. Today he's seen as a national hero of Romania, as well as an important, semi-legendary figure to Romanians all over the world, and while his body may long be lost to history, his reputation and story assure that he'll live on within its annals. Thanks for joining me on this two-part episode on Vlad the Impaler. Fascinating guy, wasn't he? If you enjoy getting to know some of history's more notorious figures, then you might want to consider supporting this podcast. It's simple. All you have to do is visit podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash history loves company. That's all one word. And click the support button, which will show you three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Just listening and sharing also help me out, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in again next week for a look at a Russian revolution. No, not that one. On History Loves Company podcast. Because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time. <laughs>